you know, as we preach today's message, God and politics, um, I have decided it's going to be a couple of weeks at least, by the way. Um, I just feel like we're going to push the, the launch of bold just a little bit longer, although this is very bold, um, that we'll push that a couple of weeks and we're going to spend two, maybe three weeks in this God and politics zone. Um, and so, but what I want to do is I, I just want to read something to you that'll maybe help us to look through the right lens, you know? And so for me, I thought I want to start in Colossians chapter 3, verse 23. Um, and I just want to read 23 and 24 to you. And this is the lens that we look at everything we do in our lives, okay? Whether it's politics, school, education, the job God wants us to pursue with our lives. Um, but from Colossians three twenty-three, it says, whatever you do. Now, whatever. Someone say, whatever. whatever. Come on, say, whatever. whatever. You do. Whatever you do. All right, now, the interesting thing, now, you know, a lot of things get lost in translation between one language and another. This word, whatever, is extremely important to the whole text, all right? Like this word, whatever you do, speaks to like what everything. It's the anchor word for the text. And so you really do need to make sure you understand its meaning. So you got to go back to the Greek in which it was written. And when you do that, you'll discover that it means whatever you do. Not some of the things you do. Not one of the, not all the things except the one thing. But whatever means whatever. So with that little Greek lesson for you, whatever you do, work at it with your whole heart as though for the Lord and not for men. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. For you are serving the Lord Jesus Christ. Whatever you do, can I give this to you? Whatever you do, everything you do, do it as though you're doing it for the Lord. For in fact, it is the Lord that you're working for. That is the premise of our message today. So come on, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in everything, you have a plan. In everything. And God, we want to do everything we do according to your plan. Everywhere we go, everything we say, every sermon that we preach, every topic that we look at, every, every, every relationship that we have, God, we want to work at it as though working for the Lord because we know that in fact it is all for you. <clears throat> so God, I pray you help us today to work through this important issue in a way that honors you. God, in a way that opens up our hearts to allow our lives to be used by you here on earth and in our political engagement in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, amen. Come on, would you high five one of your neighbors and take a seat? <clears throat> you can high five two of your neighbors if you want. All right, all right, all right, all right, all right. Are you ready for this? Come on, are you ready for this? Because we're going to have some fun today. And, um, well, I am, and, and, and some of you, or most of you are, and some of you maybe less, but it's going to be a lot of fun in church today. And, um, 
Now, um, when we started preparing our, our, our sermon this weekend, we had a lot of people with a lot of opinions about what we should and should not say, and a lot of people that haven't read the Constitution tell, talking about it, and a lot of people that haven't read the Johnson Amendment talking about that, and a lot of people quoting Romans 13 that have never been to church, a lot of atheists saying, give unto Caesar, and I'm like, well, where the king at, right? <laughs> A lot of people quoting a lot of things that they have no understanding about, all right? We got accused of all sorts of craziness on there, like they all, like they just assume we're going to get up there and tell everyone you got to vote for this particular person uh, and not that particular person, um, which I wouldn't do anyway because I have respect for you as an adult to decide what's best, but what I want to do is give you the tools to make that decision better, Right? And uh, so that's what we're going to do today. Uh, we had people accuse us of um, being the, ro- the, the American Taliban. I find that hilarious. They're like, you pro-lifers, you're the American Taliban. I'm like, wait up, hold up. So those of us who are like, hey, let's not kill the children are the same as those saying, hey, let's behead everybody. Yeah, that makes sense. Good job. You're really educated. And... Um, <clears throat> So I thought that was great. In fact, you know how every time that we talk about social media, I usually tell you, hey, you're not going to win fights online. Y'all know I usually say that, right? You know, hands up if you've heard us say that. Like, you're not going to win fights online, right? Like, you know, nobody ever is just, just dead set in their ways. And then they're like, well, you know, telling their story about how they, how they, you know, came to see the light. Nobody's really online and they're like, well, I made this post and then Jenny attacked me and, 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 and showed me why I was wrong online. And I read that and I was like, wow, I'm wrong. It just doesn't happen, right? So I always tell people, like, let's just not engage people in debates and fights online. It's not going to be super healthy. Um, and that's my advice to you. That was not my advice to myself this week. <laughs> and so there was a moment where I'm like, like, I know I say that. But this person's a particularly special person that needs to be educated and see the light. Um, And so one person, again, they're like, you know, another comment, you know, oh, you're the American Taliban, to which I wrote. Now, I have access to the church Facebook page. I don't run that. But like, I'm, I think I still like from the, from the beginning days, I still have like ownership or admin or something. So sometimes when I comment on things, it'll like say it's eternity and not me. And so I reply to this person thinking, I'm going to be replying as Jesse Newman, um, which I shouldn't have been doing. And, and so they're like, you're the American Taliban. And I reply, yes, and you're invited to one of our monthly beheading services where we behead the infidels. <laughs> and it said that Eternity Church did that. And... Um, on the advice of people who have some versions of influence in my life, I deleted that <laughs> and then started taking my own advice and went back to, hey, come to church on a weekend and then maybe argue with me afterwards, you know. And um, so anyway, so just so you know, I'm as uh, ridiculous and stupid as the next person uh, when it comes to engagement online. Um, but today what we actually want to do, though, is uh, talk about, um, uh, is talk about how, all, how Christians, and by extension the church, should be involved in politics, all right? Um, and uh, and we'll, we'll talk about, uh, you know, what that means. Should Christians vote according to their deeply held beliefs? 
or should they check them at the door of the voting booth because religion has no place in politics, or so we're told. Um, you know, should Christians run for office? Uh, should they be in political representative positions, school boards, city councils, things like that? Um, uh, and when they're in office, uh, should they vote according to their beliefs? Or should they check those beliefs at the door? You know, when it comes to debating and making law, should they, should they be thinking about that through the lens of their faith or without that, you know? And so should we be involved in, in politics, you know? So at the scripture, we read that um, in all things, do everything as though doing it for the Lord. Well, I believe that means including your politics. I believe that includes your voting. I believe that includes your leadership. I believe that includes your parenting. I believe that includes your teaching at a school, right? No matter where you are, no matter what you're involved in, all things means all things, right? And so I want to talk today about this notion of separation of church and state only for a moment because I I hope you didn't come here for a constitutional lesson, but to be inspired by the Word of God, right? Um, And so I love the Constitution. I think it's fantastic. I think it's the absolutely the greatest founding documents um, uh, written by man on earth uh, in the history of the world in terms of the foundation of a country and its laws, etc. I I think it's amazing. I love it. Uh, I'm all about it. but, but But it's not my guiding, it's not my life's guiding document. All right. My life's guiding document is the Word of God. And if ever they should conflict, I'll go with the Word of God every day of the week, right? Um, And I love America. I'm pro-America. I moved here, for goodness sake, right? You see, most people are moving to America because it's a great country, all right? It's an amazing place to be. Um, but, But what I love more than America is Jesus Christ. America's not my God. God is my God. And I'm not trying to have America infiltrate my faith, I want my faith to infiltrate the country that I live in. You see what I'm saying? Okay. Now, uh, so I absolutely am a little bit, but I am in awe of the ingenious of uh, of the Constitution of the United States. And now as an Australian, I do want to spend just a couple of minutes getting rid of some myths though. All right. And so the Aussie is going to educate some people on uh, separation of church and state. Now, um, here's the thing though. Uh, I do feel like when I see people comment on and write about the Constitution or they just say things, I feel like they're saying things other people said to them but they've never read about. And it blows my mind, right? Um, Considering this is probably the greatest force of freedom and prosperity and peace on planet Earth in the history of the world, you'd think people would actually want to read the document not just what somebody echoed to them, right? For me, I have to read it because we're actually becoming citizens of this great country, right? And so I don't know if it's a couple, it could be tomorrow, it could be in six months, um, but that's happening. So we need to know some things. And I've been reading it since I got here because I've been fascinated by it. But I want to talk about this notion of separation of church and state and what that means. But interestingly enough, the the number of people that say um, our constitution to, uh, 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 says separation of church and state. The, the, the interesting thing is it, it doesn't at all say that. And a lot of people are surprised by that, but it, it's not in the Declaration of Independence. It's not in the preamble. It's not in the amendment. It's not in the Constitution at all, all right? 
So, so where does it come from, this, this, this word separation of church and state, right? And so we need to know where it came from to know what its intention was when it was first said, right? So A, it's not in the document, but it, it was in a letter written by Thomas Jefferson, all right? Now, he wasn't even in the United States at the time. I believe he was in France. I think he was in Paris. And he was writing a letter to some friends or to some people that had concerns about uh, the government interfering in their church, right? And so what, what Thomas Jefferson wrote was, and this is the first time it was mentioned or on record, believing that you, believing with you, believing with you, he's writing, Thomas Jefferson at this point, he's writing to us, the church, right? So he's actually writing to Danbury Baptist Association. We're not Baptists, but same, do you know what I mean? He's writing to the church, He's expressing to them that he's proud of the work he did to protect them from the government interfering in their faith. And he says, believing with you that religion is a matter which lies solely between man and his God, that he owes account to none other for his faith and his worship, that the legitimate powers of government reach actions only and not opinions, I contemplate with sovereign reverence that act of the whole American people which declared that their legislator should make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Thus, we built a wall of separation between the church and the state. And that's what it says. That's it. That's it. And so the the constitutional side of that is, make no law respecting the establishment of a religion. What does that mean? That the Constitution forbids the government from saying, y'all are Christians, or y'all are Hindus, or y'all have no faith, or y'all are atheists. That the government is restricted from being able to tell everybody what faith they are. The Establishment Clause does not forbid a person's faith principles from guiding them while they debate and make law. It doesn't say that. That's made up. But rather, it makes it unconstitutional to prevent any American from living their faith, expressing their faith in accordance with their deeply held beliefs. Any American or some Aussie dude that chose to live over here, right? It also makes it unconstitutional to force someone to identify as a particular religion. And that's actually good. Because Christianity, or being a believer, is just that, being a believer. It's not a title bestowed upon a person or a nation. It's something that God, sorry, it's something that you are if you believe. Scripture says, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, then you will be saved. Not if your parents baptize you as a baby and decide you're a Christian. Not if your government says, this is a Christian nation, therefore everybody's a Christian. That doesn't work. It's a personal faith. So I, for one, am glad that the government cannot say everybody's a Christian. But its main purpose, according to Thomas Jefferson, is to build a wall that protects us from them interfering with our faith and telling us how we can practice or express our faith. And I think that's awesome. Anybody else think that's awesome? I think it's awesome. I really think that's absolutely fantastic. So, but a Christian's faith can absolutely influence the way they debate and make law. So let's create an example, all right? So, um, we, we, a Christian, a bunch of politicians could uh, make a law that says, hey, a bunch of us in our hearts feel this is the right thing to do, so therefore we make this law. 
And there it is. What they can't do is say, because this is a Christian nation, we need to make this law. And there it is. They can't do that. They can't do that. But if more of them think the right thing to do is this, and it doesn't contradict the the freedoms and, and the rights in the Constitution, then they absolutely can do that. Do you hear what I'm saying? Deeply held beliefs are not prohibited from the debate chamber. And that is good news. So when we say that we want more God in politics, we aren't saying that there should be a Christian or a, or a faith litmus test based on who's allowed to be elected. We're not saying that you can't be in politics if you're not a Christian. We're just saying that Christians should be putting Christians in politics. That's what we're saying. And now, now see, here's the thing. If, if the atheists want atheists in politics, they, they can vote for atheists to be in politics. If the Muslims want Muslims in politics, well, well, they can vote for the Muslims to be in politics, all right? Because constitutionally, there's no faith test on who's allowed to be in there. But we, we absolutely can send our faith principles, values, morals, and ethics to the debate chamber. Absolutely. And I think that's fantastic news, don't you? But like I said, we're not here for a constitutional, um, for a constitutional um, perspective, but a biblical perspective. Because even if the Constitution forbade us for voting our beliefs in the debate chamber, we would anyway if the Bible encouraged us to do so, right? Because that's our guiding document, not what man wrote. This is our guiding document. So let's see what the, bi- what the biblical perspective is uh, on on that. So you're ready for it? People are a bit tired. But sorry, people are a bit like weary. They're like, I just don't want to be caught on camera being like, yeah, when someone mentioned the Constitution in the church. All right? Listen, we're allowed to talk about politics and policy, values and ethics in church. And, and by the people, people are always like this. They're like, well, um, uh, well, pay your taxes. I'm like, well, well we do, by the way. Um, but also, we also take advantage of the, uh, of the, uh, of the uh, what are they called, deductions and, and tax code law that allows you to pay less, right? And I don't know really anybody out there that's like, I'm paying more tax because I can. Like, ain't nobody, even the people who are like, we need to pay more taxes aren't paying more taxes until the law says they do, right? <clears throat> and so, I think we should do a sermon on taxes. Who thinks should, that would be awesome, right? The Bible actually talks about taxes a lot, by the way. Little teaser, uh, end of Romans 13, pay your taxes, is what it says. The taxes you're told to pay, pay your taxes. And, uh, and, so, and, and, and people are like, well, that was, you know, not to an ungodly government. No, 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 that government was hunting them down to kill them. Give them money. Mm. People are in here now are like, man... I wanted a biblical reason to not pay money. No, pay your taxes. All right? That's the word of God. But I think we could do a sermon on, on that at some point. But, um, but what we want to do right now, though, is just talk about uh, Christians' involvement in politics and policy. So um, uh, there's a thing in, uh, in theology called the law of first mention, which is when's the first time this sort of concept came up in the word of God? It's a good guiding principle. And so for me, I think that I want to go as far back as I can. And the first time I see something about ruling um, or, you know, like dominion or over, ruling over, influence over is actually in Genesis chapter 27. Sorry, chapter 1, verse 27. It says, So God made mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And in verse 28, God blessed them and he said to them, Be fruitful, increase in number, 
fill the earth and rule over it. That's right there. Right there in the very beginning, we've been called to rule over the earth. Right there. And you better believe he's talking to people that honor and love the Lord. Absolutely, right? Those who follow him are still called to rule, to lead, to have influence, to own businesses, to work in businesses, to influence those businesses, to work in schools, to influence those schools. God calls people to leadership and influence from the very beginning all the way to the end of the Word of God. Biblical examples would include uh, Joseph, Daniel, Mordecai. Y'all heard of Mordecai? Heard of Esther? Mordecai put her there. All right? So all throughout the Word of God. Let's start with Joseph, though, right? Joseph had some dreams about him being in a position of authority, ruling over people, and then his brothers got mad, and so they threw him in a pit and sold him into slavery. Great brothers. Hey, don't do that to your siblings, all right? It's not godly, though God used it. Then those people that, that, that bought Joseph sold him into slavery again in um, in Egypt, uh, some things happened and he ended up in prison. Uh, and then while he was in prison, a couple of guys had some dreams. Uh, then Joseph was able to interpret their dreams because he had a gift from God. And then um, those interpretations came true because what God says comes true, right? And, um, and so then, the, then Pharaoh, the king, Pharaoh, he had a dream that really troubled him. And then one of the other guys who experienced Joseph's extraordinary ability to, to, to interpret a dream, told Pharaoh. Pharaoh then calls for Joseph to come and interpret his dream. Joseph used the gift that God gave him, interprets the dream for Pharaoh, and because of that, then Pharaoh was blown away by the power of God in Joseph's life. Now, Joseph then began to find favor with Pharaoh. And Pharaoh, as he's about to elevate Joseph to a position of authority over the entire land, with the authority equivalent to the president or the prime minister of a country, when elevating Joseph, Pharaoh says that the reason why is this, can we find another man like this within whom is the Spirit of God? Isn't that interesting? That the man who got to choose who would be elevated was motivated by the Spirit of God being in that man. And I believe that that is a principle that we too should use in our lives. That we would search the the people that are running for policy, the people that are running for positions, and that we should elevate those within whom dwells the Spirit of God. Amen? See, what's really cool about that is that, um, is that the only reason Egypt survived a massive famine was because a man of God, using the gift that God gave him, was in a political position of power in the land. Then Joseph's own brothers, who had recently sold him into slavery, turned up in Egypt looking for food and grain. See, because there was a famine that stretched the land, the known land. But the only country that had food was the country that had a man of God in a position of authority. A man that heard from God and spoke the word of God in a position of authority. So they, they prepared for the coming famine and they lived 
with wealth in that time. Then his own brothers came to that land looking for supplies and found it. So the Jewish people only survived because there was a man of God in a position of authority. Isn't that interesting? Have you heard about Mordecai? And you, everyone knows about Esther. She married the king, right? Well, what happened was the king, um, he was married to, to, to one queen and evidently you trade those in back then, apparently. And so then he, he, he gets rid of her and, and he's searching for a new queen. Mordecai hears about this and he starts working behind the scenes to put Esther in a position that she would, that she would gain King Xerxes' favor. It all works out well. He's politicking, right? He, he, he's moving the pieces behind the scenes and puts Esther right in the right spot. And then, the, then Xerxes sees her and says, that's my girl. That's the, that's the queen 2.0 right there. We're going to marry that girl. <clears throat> then... Someone tricks Xerxes into issuing a decree to kill all the Jews. It is fascinating how many times people have wanted to kill the Jewish people. Unless there really is some call of God on that people, it makes no sense that the devil would keep trying to kill all of them. I don't think you can name a people group throughout all of history that has had for thousands of years, people like, let's annihilate that entire group of people, right? So this was one of those times, right? And so in this situation where all the Jews are about to be murdered, everybody's got the right to kill Jewish people, Mordecai then uses the influences, the influence that he has over Esther, who's in a position of power and authority, and persuades her to use her influence to save the Jewish people. It's amazing how many times godly people in political positions save us from ungodly people in political positions. Politics, people are like, ugh, politicians are good for nothing. Listen, some of them are great, but all of them need to be honored <clears throat> according to the word of God, right? Have you heard about um, Daniel and his three mates, right? So Daniel caught favor with the king. It's fascinating. Sometimes they're not even always in their own lands. It's not even always Christian places or, or Jewish places. It'd be like this. This is not a quote-unquote Christian country, though it was founded upon and blessed because of quote-unquote Christian and godly principles, right? <clears throat> and in that environment, God wants to elevate people within whom His Spirit dwells. What happens with Daniel is Daniel lives his faith out loud. He's very loud about it. This is what I believe is the right thing to do. And so the king, it says in Daniel chapter 2, verse 48, the king then placed Daniel in a position of high authority and lavished him with many gifts. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and placed him in charge of all of its wise men. Moreover, at Daniel's request, the king then... Now what? Moreover, at whose request? <clears throat> at Daniel's request. Moreover, at Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach... Meshach and Abednego as administrators over the province of Babylon, while Daniel himself remained at the royal court. See, it, is, it was, in fact, Daniel living his faith out loud in front of people, being boisterous and loud about what he believes, that caused the king to find favor on him and to elevate him into a position of high authority. And then Daniel, when he was in a position 
when he had influence and the ability to elevate others, he picked other godly people. Again, and I believe we are called to do the same thing. We all get to vote. And when we vote, that is us in Daniel's position or us in Pharaoh's position deciding whom shall we elevate? Well, we want to do like they did and elevate those within whom the Spirit of God dwells. Amen. Can I get an amen? And so now that's Old Testament. I know there's more in the New Testament. I'll just share two times. You've heard of Zacchaeus, the tax collector. When we think of that, we think of the IRS. And in, in, in a way, I guess it's similar. But it was actually a very political uh, uh, political and authority uh, and, and position of authority in those days. And Zacchaeus has an encounter with Christ, becomes a believer, um, becomes very generous and more just in his dealings because that's what a believer will do. A believer will be full of truth with, his, with justice and grace for those who make mistakes, amen? So Zacchaeus became a guy full of truth and full of grace in a political position. Then there's Nicodemus. Now, Nicodemus, excuse me. <coughs> now, Nicodemus was a quintessential politician, but with tremendous power. In fact, um, he was a Pharisee, a member of the Sanhedrin. And, uh, and, and, and the, the Pharisees, they were like all branches of the government together. Judge, jury, executioner, lawmaker, uh, trial judge, jury, everything, right? Well, he was one of those guys, a very powerful man in a very political and powerful position. In John chapter 3, he comes to inquire of Jesus. And, and, he, and I love what he says when he comes to Jesus. He says, I know that you came from God. So already he had some faith. I know you came from God. Then Jesus and Nico, they start to talk about being born again. Nicodemus, uh, I don't think he was being a smart aleck. I think he was confused. And he goes, wait, I got to jump back up inside my mom? And Jesus is like, nah, bro, let me explain this to you better. You need to be spiritually born again, right? And then um, the, the conversation between Jesus and, and, and Nicodemus ends in John 3.16, where the last thing he says is, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That was the end of Nicodemus and Jesus' conversation. What we see then is, obviously, Nicodemus had become a believer and done just that, believed in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and given him his life. And, and now he's a man of God. And so we see a little later in John chapter 7 that Nicodemus actually attempts to, to use his power to intervene politically on Jesus' behalf. Then we see later on in John 19 um, that, uh, that Nicodemus himself counts himself as a believer. From the beginning to the end of the Word of God, Genesis to Malachi, from Matthew to Revelation, we see in the Word of God that God has used, elevated, appointed, and encouraged Christians to be in positions of authority and power, and, and, and all of that not even to mention the kingdom of Israel itself and all of God's plans and elevations uh, of people to positions in there as well. <clears throat> so what I, I say all that to say this. That, oh, by the way, and, they, and he even had people politicking. <laughs> that, is, that is, moving behind the scenes, making things happen to get people into the right positions to, of, of influence. All right? 
God used it. And we need more godly people in positions of leadership and authority. <laughs> Absolutely. We need more godly people in positions of leadership and authority. Christians are the only people who are told to check your values at the door before you go into a lawmaking position. Nobody's saying that to, uh, to, to uh, Congresswoman Rashid up in, um, in Minnesota. No one's telling the Muslim lady, check your Muslim values at the door before you go in there, lady. No one's doing that. No one's saying it to, to, the, uh, to the atheist. Check your atheistic values at the door before you go in there. They only say it to us. That's it. Like somehow our deeply held beliefs will disappear and we won't feel what we feel and believe what we believe when we walk into the debate chamber. I think that if God puts you in that position, he didn't put you there to pretend you're somebody else, but to be the man or the woman of God that you're called to be. <clears throat> he put you there to represent godly biblical truths in positions of power. So we need more of that. Amen. We need more of that. Amen? But I feel like so many Christians would prefer that politicians check their values at the door. I hear about Christians, a small group, but some Christians who want politicians who are devoid of the Holy Spirit. I want politicians who would make statements like Peter made. So we did what was right, what seemed right to us and the Holy Spirit. Now, some people think that means we want Shire Law and all that stuff. I'm like, well, number one, that's what they said online. You know, I want Shire Law. I'm like, well, being a Christian, no. Different faith there. Uh, we don't want that. And, and the cool thing about Jesus is he came full of truth and full of grace. And we're supposed to be the same. So when we're in positions of authority, we should come full of truth and full of grace. That means truth. We don't water it down. We don't pretend it doesn't matter. We, 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 don't, we don't give up on our morals and our ethics. We hold them. We got a high aim and a big cushion called grace for people who miss the bar and fail. We need more people full of truth and full of grace and the word of God in politics. Can someone say amen? amen. The reason is... If you remove godly values from politics, if you remove godly values from society, you actually begin to remove the very bedrock and the very foundation that our entire Western culture was built upon. The entire Western culture was built upon biblical values and the word of God. It all came from God. This incredible value of the individual was not a uniquely American ideal, but a biblical ideal. This idea that every individual matters, that you would leave 99 to go take care of one, that you would stop on the side of the road to care for a neighbor, not because the law requires it, but because you should, because it's the right thing to do. This whole idea that encourages us to forgive an offense, to encourage hard work, even personal freedom and personal responsibility. Come on. This idea of capitalism with generosity, right? These are biblical principles. I always find people and they're like, um, the Bible's socialism. I'm like, uh, no. No, no, it really isn't. Um, there's many examples of why it's not. Uh, one, of the, one, one good example would be the parable of the talents uh, that to him who's not willing to do anything, even the little he has should be taken and given to the one with much. That doesn't sound, does it? Because the word of God encourages personal responsibility. 
It even goes so far as to say, if you won't work, you shouldn't get to eat. That's in the Bible. How about that? These ideals, these, they're, they're very Western ideals. They come from the Word of God. Coupled with generosity, coupled with people taking care of the poor, coupled with people caring for the sick, coupled with people uh, being willing to pray for people even if they've got corona. Come on, right? That's what the church is called to do. Even the value on family, biblical. The disdain for adultery, biblical. Even in a secular world now that has grown up on Western culture, right, still has Western values based on the Word of God, right? No father's going to see his son uh, cheating on his wife and be like, good job, bro. Was she good looking? Not going to do it, is he? He's going to be like, stop that. Even if they're not saved, they still have those values. These, they, they come from the Word of God, right? Historians and researchers the world over, they acknowledge that it's not just the Word of God, but also people, Christians, living and expressing their faith, their morality and their values in the home, in public and in office and elected positions. Anthropologists, all of them, they'll tell you that the bedrock... And the thing that, that, that sprang Western society and made it flourish was the Word of God and the house of God. That's why the Western world and Western culture has been such a force for freedom. Freeing slaves. The first culture to, 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 to make slavery illegal was Western culture. <clears throat> Promoting women. Reducing violence, it stabilized governments, protected liberties given by God, it cares for the sick, cares for the elderly, provides for the poor, not just at home but abroad. It all comes from Christians living Christianity out loud. <clears throat> There's no country with a high emphasis on any other religion or ethical code that is experiencing the freedom and the flourishing and the blessing that Western culture is. It values Liberty, individual liberty, protects and promotes women, promotes freedom. You can't name one country that's not at least rooted in Judeo-Christian values that promotes freedom and individual liberty. You can't find one, not one, not one. You might say France. Yep, where did France come from? Religion. It came, it was influenced by Christianity and the church. And you always hear people, and, and they're, they're, they're usually just from one particular side of the political aisle, and I don't mean to, I hope this doesn't sound harsh, but, but, but they do tend to just be on one side, and, and no matter what, what way you vote, by the way, you're welcome here, just FYI, right? But we're going to teach biblical principles, because I, I, I feel led to just preach what's truth and right, no matter how many people want to stay or leave, right? And so that's, that's just where we land. And so, but there is this group on one particular side of the political aisle and they rail against Western values. It fascinates me because so many people on that particular side of the aisle would be jailed, murdered, or even beheaded for those same values in almost any other culture. And it fascinates me. It fascinates me how many people in the LGBT community hate Israel when it's the only place in the Middle East where the LGBT community won't be beheaded. I'm like, you want to fight for Palestine? Go ahead. You won't make it to the front line. And I don't say that to be mean. It's just the truth. 
See, while we have a high moral code, we have a whole lot of grace. And so you may not meet that mark that comes from the word of God, but we're not going to behead you. We're not going to jail you. We have grace. Do you hear what I'm saying? We have a high moral code. You know, you know it, it, it's a God thing. It's, it's not a, oh, Western countries are majority white. Listen, the color of your skin has jack crap to do with the morality of the man or the woman. Or the value of the man or the woman. Nothing to do with it. It's got nothing to do with whiteness, color of your skin, but the power of God. And when you value what he values, you get blessed. You get blessed. Christian, you could call them Christian nations, I guess, in that they had majority Christian people. But the first place is to outlaw slavery. They are the most diverse countries on the planet. Christian countries are the, go to any other, any, any country that places a high emphasis on any other religion or, or, or moral code. They don't have the diversity even that we have in these countries because we understand the value of every single individual person that God created. And it comes from the word of God. Amen. Whether you like it or not, now I'm talking to the atheists that might have tuned in online because you're like, I'm going to catch him, break the Johnson Code and screw that church over. I don't care. People always threaten us. We're going to report you to the IRS. I'm like, read the thing before you make stupid comments. Like, read the Johnson Amendment before you make these comments because I'm allowed to talk about this. And by the way, if it did stop me from talking about biblical values, I would do it anyway and pay more tax. I'm not going to let a tax break stop me from preaching the truth. Are you kidding me? Do you know how we overcome that stupid little hurdle? We say, hey, y'all, can you pay just, do you know what we'd ask you to do? We would only have to ask you to pay 2% more than you do now, and we're fine. So who can go ahead? Cost me that. Anyway. So you may have been watching trying to trap me, but listen, the values that you live in, whether you're a believer or not, this grace system that you love, all of it, any sort of Western cultural ideals, they come from Christians in politics. That's how you got here. Christians in politics, standing up for their deeply held beliefs in the schoolhouse to the state house, from the courthouse to the White House. Now you want to get rid of that? If you remove God and if you remove what God values from our politics, where where do you suppose your morality should come from? Where? You remove God, what will be your compass? What will guide your life? What will determine what's good and what's evil if there is no God? Why do we care about good and evil? If there's, Why are we not like the animals? Why can't I take what's yours and make it mine? Why can't I kill you for offending me? Why? Was there a time I could? Was it popular? What's your guiding principles, if not the Word of God and the value system we get from God on high? What is it? Is it popularity? Does popularity determine what's right and what's wrong? 
Because that's what they say. Is it enlightened? We're in an, an age of enlightenment. Enlightened to what? Enlightened to what's now popular but wasn't then? So you've been enlightened to popularity. Okay, cool. So popularity is the guide of what's right and wrong. Cool, so slavery was fine. Well, it was popular. No, no, listen. Slavery was very popular. So it was good then, right? Because there's no God. So where do, where do you derive your morals from? What's right? What's wrong? I, so was slavery good then, but, but it's evil now because more people say it's evil now. <clears throat> the world over, most people now would agree it's evil. So I guess it was a good thing that honored, that was good for culture then, because everybody, but now it's bad. Well, that's ludicrous, right? Well, what, what about stealing? Well, I, why, why can't I take your Ferrari if you have one? There is someone in this church whose parents own a Ferrari. Why can't I take it? Because most people think stealing's wrong. Well, why can't I rob your store? Is stealing okay when I'm poor or is it always wrong? Where do our ethics come from? Are they situational? Does it depend on who agrees and who doesn't agree or what environment I'm in at the time? Is that when I decide what's good and what's evil, what's right and what's wrong? Why can't I be racist? Why? Because it used to be cool to be racist. So if everybody agreed, I guess racism was good. Why can't I be a racist? Why can't I be a racist moron? Actually, I wouldn't be a moron because it wouldn't be bad because there's no definition of what's right and what's wrong. It's based on popularity and, and 300 years ago, it was fine. So why is it not fine now? Because our opinions changed. So if we get... If we get a group in one city, in one state that determine that murder's fine, I guess it's fine. In some cultures, it's okay to rape a woman under certain circumstances. And most of the people there agree. So is that fine? Because they agree. They say it's okay. There's a, it's popular. So why is it wrong? If there's no God, why do you get to decide what's right and wrong? I'll tell you why I can't be racist. Because the word of God shows me clearly from the front to the end that every man, every woman, every child is valued by God, created equal in His image. The word of God tells me I don't kill gay people. I got grace for gay people. The word of God tells me that poor poverty doesn't make you less valuable, but that I should give you some of my stuff. It's from the word of God. Where does it come from? Where does it come from? If not the Word of God. You know what? If, you, if not the Word of God, your ethics become situational. Then it all depends how you feel on that day. Can I tell you what situational ethics do when you remove God from politics? We get a pregnant woman. Let's all pretend for a moment that I am a pregnant woman. <laughs> and evidently I am, because I said I am. 
So, 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 too far. So, I'm pregnant. But the baby is only valuable. Situational ethics creates situational value, by the way. The baby is valuable if I say so. But it's not if I don't. It's fine to kill the baby if I say I don't like the baby. But if I say I like the baby and you kill me, now it's a double homicide. So a baby's value isn't determined by who created it, but by the person's feeling that carries it. Now that you say, well, because people hate the slippery slope argument. But I mean, like, we've been down a lot of slides and we're still, like, arguing that the slippery slope doesn't exist. Oh, it does. You can take that argument to any other thing in your life. Well, murder, well, stealing, all of it. I don't want to live with situational ethics. Would you all stand up with me? We're going to land this plane in about seven minutes, so please don't leave. I'm, I'm asking you for real. Don't, don't walk out just yet. Some bit, like, he's on the band. Don't judge him. <laughs> some people have some positions they've got to go fulfill now at church. So. But, but everyone has to stick around. Our service ends in about seven minutes, okay? <clears throat> um, what was I even saying? Someone help me. Situational ethics. The thing is, even the... So those people who want to remove God, they want to be God. The one who determines what's good and what's evil. With no guiding principles. No anchor... No anchor no word, nothing. See, because the one who determines what's right and wrong is God. They want to determine it. They want to be God. So they worship themselves and whatever they want and chaos ensues. When you remove God, we end up killing 64 million babies in 60 years. And that is America's greatest sin. Oh, like I know there are other terrible things America and every other nation has done. But I believe our greatest sin is the introduction of situational ethics. And we can turn it around by remaining anchored in the Word of God when it's comfortable. Or uncomfortable. We can turn it around by elevating those within whom the Spirit of God dwells. I believe that in this room some of you are called to be elevated into positions of leadership, perhaps in school systems, perhaps on school boards, perhaps local city councils or mayor.
Perhaps you're called to lead in police departments or fire departments as chiefs. Perhaps you're called to, to be in the state house, in the senate. Perhaps you might be called to be our next governor. Perhaps you might be called to the federal house or the federal senate or the courthouse. Only good can come from those positions being filled with grace and truth. Amen. So I want to encourage you, and I hope this has been good for you to realize, you don't have to check your ethics at the door. No one else has to. You don't have to. And even if they did tell you to, you shouldn't anyway. At that point, we would be like Peter and say, well, you can choose whether it's right to obey these earthly masters, but as for us, we will do what God said. That's a little teaser for the Romans 13 sermon that we'll preach. Right? So don't, vote your values, vote your ethics. I want to pray for you. Would you lift up your hands with me right now? Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can remain grounded in truth and grace, in hope and love, by staying grounded and anchored in your word. God, I thank you it doesn't change with popularity. God, I thank you that it's reliable, that we can build our lives on the bedrock of the word of God and our lives will be unshakable. Our children will grow up unshaken. God, I thank you that when our lives are built on a firm foundation, that even situations that go on in Ukraine or in Europe or, 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 or around us or even in our own political environment, that God, that we will remain firm. Because we're called by God. We're loved by God. We're kept by God. And so we know that all things are going to work out for our benefit. But God, I pray you help us that when it comes to school voting, Lord God, that, that, that we would wake up and get involved and vote for our school boards. That we would wake up and get involved and vote for our city councils. That we would wake up and get involved and vote for our local state federal uh, elected positions that we would wake up and do it and God that you would help us to recognize those within whom the spirit of God dwells God I also pray you help us to honor and to pray for those who are already in those positions Lord God like right now like the, that you would give wisdom to President Biden Lord God God he needs wisdom right now God, we don't know what he can do, what he can't do, but we do know that he needs wisdom <clears throat> to help the world stay in peace right now. So God, we pray for him who is already in the position. Whether or not people agree that he should or shouldn't be, Lord God, we pray for he who is in it. That Lord God, you would give him grace. You would give him wisdom and a heart that seeks peace and prosperity in Jesus' name. But God, we pray for the next election and our local elections. Help us to recognize those within whom the Spirit of God dwells. And God, finally, I pray for people here right now that those in the room that are called to run for positions of authority or leadership, whether it's in schools, school boards, school councils, city councils, whatever it is, God, I pray. I pray you tug so hard on their heart that they cannot continue to box it in wake it up 
unleash a bunch of godly men and women all over this state, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Can you give God a shout of praise if you received that word? Thank you so much for listening to this message. If you enjoyed it, please check out our other episodes. If you would like to connect with Eternity Church, be sure to go to myeternity.com or follow us on Facebook and Instagram at myeternitychurch. We'll see you next week. Love you heaps.